0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's go into chapter 6 of Luke. Father, I thank you again so much for the chance to study your Word. Father, it's uh, something I remember from time to time that no matter what I may try to do to seek you and to find you, it's never the case, Father, that I have the capability to do that. I, I have to rely on you, Father, to find me and to seek after me. So, Father, what can I do to please you? What could I do, Father, to be used by you and the answer, Father, you give is always the same. That in every day, and every moment of every day, you give us choices, you give us opportunity, and you wait, Father, that we might choose to listen to your voice and not the world, to choose to do your will and not our own, to make your priorities our priorities, that at every turn, Father, as we've lived our life, We've known the right thing, but yet many times we've not chosen it, Father. And we've listened to what the world thinks is right. And Father, you tell us that if we will return to you, if we will seek your word, if we will listen to your voice, and if we will turn, Father, from the mistakes of the past, that you will heal us and you will take us forward for the next opportunity. And we trust, Father, that you will do that, that you will be faithful even when we are not. And here we are again, Lord, ready to learn. Studying your word and asking that the Holy Spirit, Father, guide us to put it to great work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right. Well, in chapter five, we left off in Luke chapter five at the end, showing uh, this growing conflict between the Pharisees and between Jesus. And as I've said already, this is a growing theme for Luke. But Luke's not simply interested in the fact that there is disagreement between the Pharisees and between Jesus. That's the least of it. What Luke is more interested in demonstrating and more interested in bringing out in the text is what the conflict really revolves around. It's not merely differences in teaching on this point or on another point. There's a much more fundamental difference between the way Jesus is preaching God and the way the Pharisees have misrepresented God. This conflict essentially focuses over the Pharisees' authority over people. And on the other hand, Jesus is preaching that men are not the answer, men's rules are not the answer, that God himself has a different way and that he is here to preach it. And Jesus, through his teachings and through his healings, has grabbed the imagination of the people in his day. And he has begun to, as we've already said, draw huge crowds. And the Pharisees now have recognized that that growing popularity is a threat. A threat to their control and a threat to their authority. And at the conclusion of chapter 5, Jesus had effectively declared that their religious system was worn out and was ready for replacement. That was the purpose in his parables. And that the two, meaning the old and the new, could never mix. So Jesus himself and his own teaching has put himself in opposition to the Pharisees. He's given them no opportunity. He said effectively, it's all me or all you, but none, no, no other choice available. The, the, the thing I preach and the thing you teach are different. And so naturally, they've targeted him now. He has a big bullseye on his back, as far as the Pharisees are concerned. And his ministry is also at risk. In other words, they don't just want to discredit him personally, they want to discredit what he's teaching. They want to stop any movement that might come from what he's teaching. And they've begun now, in a very disorganized way initially, and it's, it's very desperate, in fact, but it is going to get stronger. They've begun, in a very simple way, to bring him down in the eyes of the people, to end him as a threat. And chapter 6 continues this really almost comical way that the Pharisees go about trying to discredit Jesus, trying to bring him down. They're now focused on trying to catch him violating their rules. Now, understand, we said this last week, there is the law, the Jewish law, and all that it provided for. But on top of the law, there were rules that the Pharisees had come up with. These were not natural extensions of the law. They were not commentary on the law. They were flat out new rules that they had said for their own sake and by their own power were necessary for righteousness. So it's not as though Jesus is violating the law. If he did, it would be sin. And he has no sin in him, we're told. So it's not that he's violating the law. He's violating their rules. And it's comical because Jesus has already made clear in the previous chapter that their man-made rules weren't worth following in the first place. And yet, somehow in the minds of the Pharisees, if they can catch him breaking their rules, that somehow will discredit him in the minds of the people. But what's funny about that to me is that the Pharisees hadn't picked up on the fact that the people, these, these crowds that they're hoping to, to discredit Jesus in front of, these crowds hated the rules as much as Jesus said. They were looking for someone, in fact, to stand up to the Pharisees about these rules. So, the discrediting Jesus over the sake of these rules was not going to succeed. Look at the beginning of chapter 6 and you'll see how this works. 6 verse 1. Now it had happened that as he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in in their hands and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's end there for just a moment and consider what we've read. From this scene, Luke and the other gospel writers as well paint for us a picture of Jesus and the twelve disciples moving from town to town. And in this particular day, on a Sabbath day, They've walked into a grain field. And we're probably looking here at at barley. That was the most common grain in the day. Could have been wheat, but it was probably barley. And it's obviously grown to the point where they can pick seed, pick, pick the grain off the stalk, which means it's probably waist to chest high, and it's got grain on it. It's near ready for harvest. And now they're walking through on a Sabbath. Obviously, they're hungry. And what the disciples have been doing is they've been taking the little heads of grain that they could pluck easily, and then they rub it in their hands to get rid of the husk. And what's left is the seed the fruit of the grain, and they begin to eat that, and then they take another one, and they do the same thing. And they're just moving through the field, kind of grazing, if you will, as they walk through this grain field. Now, under Jewish law, it was permissible for a man to do what these men were doing. In other words, to take the heads of grain from another man's field and eat it. Here's where the law actually states that in Deuteronomy 23:24. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. Well, the concept here is pretty simple, right? A man can take a small amount of food, a small amount of produce out of another man's field or another man's vineyard and use it for a quick meal. And that was justifiable. That was a reasonable use of that man's produce because, frankly, he's never going to miss it. It's it's, it's. Such a small amount, it was. it's probably less than what just falls to the ground naturally when they're harvesting. So it didn't hurt the man any to give another man an opportunity to have a quick meal in that way. But, you take out a basket, you carry home a huge amount, home, that's a little different story, you know. If you take your sickle out and mow down the field, that's kind of outside the bounds of what the law was providing for. And that's a pretty simple concept. What it did was draw a very clear line between stealing and not stealing under that particular circumstance. But the law said nothing at all about doing this activity on a Sabbath or not doing it on a Sabbath. The law had nothing to say about what day you did it. It merely allowed for the possibility that it could be done. That law, that rule that said doing this was unacceptable on the Sabbath, that came from the Pharisees. And actually what the Pharisees had done is they had taken, as I said earlier, the laws of God and then made them even more restrictive, more controlling than they would have been in their natural state. And they use that as a way to consolidate their power over people. And the more restrictive the law became, the more hopeless the people felt. I mean, you can see this from your own situation, I'm sure. The more a parent clamps down on a child beyond what's necessary and reasonable, the more the child feels compelled to break free from those bonds. As a parent, I think it's helpful to remember that though a parental responsibility includes setting boundaries, setting limits, applying punishment, there is such a thing as too much. A parent can be wrong in controlling and, and prohibiting to the degree that the child now feels its instinctive desire to rebel back. That's why Paul says to fathers, don't aggravate your children. Don't, don't put your child in a position where their natural response now is to disobey you. It doesn't excuse disobedience, but it means you have now created your own problem in them. And in a bigger level now, in a greater scheme, we're, we're talking now about how a society was being oppressed by rules that were beyond what was necessary. This is an example. And these Pharisees now, the farther they pushed these rules, the farther people felt from God because, as you can imagine, the rules are here and I can't begin to meet them, so I can't begin to meet God's measure of righteousness. The more that happened, the more they would then turn in hope to their leaders for some way to absolve them from all the mistakes they were making. It's almost this negative feedback loop. I set rules in place you can't meet. You can't meet them, you feel desperate about the fact you can't meet them, so you come back to those same leaders and say, give me some hope, I have no choice, I can't make it according to these standards. That's how the Pharisees' power structure was built. They created the rules no one could keep, and then the game was rigged so that you came back to them for uh, absolving of that sin. And that was how the Pharisees did their job. Now, in this case, why are they saying it was wrong to do this on the Sabbath? I want you to see just how ridiculous their rules would get. They considered the gleaning of the heads of grain as harvesting. And they considered the rubbing of the grain in your hands as threshing. And they considered the separating of the husks from the grain as uh, winnowing. And of course, you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, and harvesting is work, and winnowing is work. So you're working. So therefore, you're violating the law. That was the way they had brought the law down into this level of detail. And so the Pharisees try to use this to accuse Jesus. And just before we even get into his response, it's clearly a desperate measure, right? First of all, they're following him. I mean, it's self-evident. They're following this guy wherever you go. And it's, You almost get a sense out of some silly spy television show with the guy, you know, binoculars in the grain field waiting for this to happen and then you know, following him to the next place. And it's, it's pathetic. It's pathetic. But that's how desperate they were. That's what I mean by comical. And it was in that day, even as it would be for us today, just a desperate measure. The people in that day would have seen it the same way. Before we move on to his response, I want you to consider something important about those first few verses. The Pharisees are demonstrating for us here in a very vivid way how rules are uh, that, that are supposedly used to promote righteousness, how they actually work. How they actually work. They are not tools for righteousness. A rule can never make us righteous. Look at how the rule is being used. These rules are not being used to make Jesus and the disciples righteous. They're solely used for accusation. A rule, by its nature, is only good for accusing people of breaking rules. The rules they had made here were, we're not going to make Jesus any more righteous. They didn't increase love for God. They didn't increase love for men. They didn't teach righteousness. They didn't teach forgiveness. They had no effect on mercy or charity. If anything, they restricted those things. They certainly didn't do anything to improve our state before God. They didn't make us holy and righteous. The only purpose they could serve was to accuse men by them, to point out mistakes, to bring guilt, to bring judgment as a basis for judgment. And that's always the purpose of rules. Look what Paul says in Romans 3. He says in Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Even the law itself, the law given to Moses, could not make you righteous. We've said this before. But think of it now in terms of rules. The more rules I give you, the more likely you are to break one. The more likely you are not to be in accordance with those rules. And if the purpose of a rule is to make you righteous... It's really not capable of doing that. It's only capable of revealing your unrighteousness. And that was the purpose of the law. That's why Paul said, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Because I know what I can't do. Not because it makes me do anything. The Pharisees were having the same effect here. They were using their rules to point out unrighteousness in their own way. And I think we have to be careful about that too. It's real easy to take what we think is right, make it a rule, and then somehow think that by applying the rule to somebody else, I'm transferring the righteousness with the rule. See how that works? If we assume, for example, that it's a Christian thing to give in charity, and then we make a rule, you have to give X amount every month, I haven't produced the righteousness that resulted in my wanting to give money in the first place. All I've done is put a rule in someone's life that every time they break it, they feel judged and condemned. It does not produce the righteousness that was at the heart of my desire to give in the first place. The heart to give has to show up first, then the behavior will follow. Rules only reveal unrighteousness. So let's move on, though, as we understand the first part of the story easily enough. But now Jesus' response. In fact, if you look at his response, it's probably going to cause you to ponder a bit. And as normally the case, we're going to have to go back and look at the Old Testament a little bit here to understand why he's using David here as an example for a response to the Pharisees. He makes a reference here to King David in the temple to a story recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And so let's go there. If you want to turn with me, it's 1 Samuel 21, verse 1, or you can listen as I read, whichever you prefer. David, uh, starting in verse 1, Then David came to Nob, to Abimelech the priest, and Abimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to, not Abimelech, I'm sorry, Ahimelech. David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out. And the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. So I've got to give you a little background on these verses. First of all, the story of David, just briefly. He had been anointed by the prophet Samuel as the next king, but presently Saul was still reigning as king. And Saul is trying to kill David because he recognizes that David is going to replace him. But David, in honoring to God, does not want to harm Saul in return, though Saul is pursuing him. David, in fact, is still the captain of Saul's army. He's the chief man of the army, being attacked by his own king and yet refusing to attack back, just fleeing Saul at every opportunity. And here he's arrived at the tabernacle, fleeing Saul, and he's only got a few of his men with him. And the priest is scared at first because it's a bad sign when the captain of the army shows up at your doorstep with just a few men. Your assumption is he's coming to kill you. He's coming to to take you away. Normally David would have been surrounded by by a large legion of men everywhere he went. And his first response to the priest's concern is he says, the king sent me on a special secret mission and he sent my men to a certain place. That's why they're not with me. That's a lie. David was lying, and by the way, if you know the story of David, he did this a lot. His, probably his chief sin, beyond the fact that he committed adultery in a moment, his continual chief sin was lying. David had a problem with, his, with telling the truth in many cases. It's just a reflection of the fact that God works through imperfect people. He's come for refuge, he says, and he's come, in fact, he's come for refuge, and he's come for provision. He's on the lamb, he's on the run, he doesn't have food. And he's come for food. And the priest says that the only food available was the show bread. Now, here's what you have to understand out of the law. The law provided that in the temple, in the tabernacle, there was to be a place in the holy place where there was bread set out. It would be set out on the Sabbath. It was left there all week, and on the, day before the Sabbath, on the Sabbath day it was removed, and new bread was put in its place. And it was consecrated before the Lord. Now, if you know what the tabernacle, uh, how it was constructed and what it's, contents were, then you recognize that all the contents in the tabernacle were pictures of Christ in one way or another. The whole tabernacle was constructed as a picture of the need for sacrifice and of God's Son being that sacrifice. And Christ himself said, I'm the bread of life. And there in the tabernacle you see bread before the altar as a picture of Christ in that way. But it was consecrated. The only ones who could eat it, according to the law, were the priests. The priests were the ones who ate that bread at the end of the seven days. They were always eating seven-day-old bread, but that was at least part of their meal. And then new bread was put out. David shows up. David's not a priest. Under the law, he's not allowed to eat that bread. David shows up. And the only thing the priest asks him, though, is are you essentially ritually clean? Have you not been with women? Because the law said that you could not have somebody uh, in the presence of the holy place or have the, the, the bread in this case if they had not been made ritually clean and that required not having been with women for at least seven days. That was the rule under the law. They said, yes, trust me, we haven't been with women. He, he, the response is almost like, hey, let me tell you, we've been on the, you know, you don't know the half of it, trust me, we haven't been anywhere near women and not on this trip for sure. And that's the response he gives the priest. David then is allowed to eat the bread. And Jesus uses this situation to draw analogy to his own actions. And we need to understand why what David did, in some sense, makes justification for what Christ is doing. What's the big picture here? Well, first of all, consider David's situation. He was trying to honor God and trying to honor God's anointed man, even though he was being persecuted by that man. So in David's heart, his intention is to do the honoring thing to God in all his actions. He's not there because he's done something wrong. He's not there because he's come with the intent to violate the law. He's trying to make the best of a bad situation. It's important to understand the man's heart, to know why David was there. He's running to save his life and trying to honor God at the same time. And he has needs. He needs food. He needs sanctuary. And he's come to God's house, hoping that would be the best place he could find it. Now, the priest had a choice. The priest could adhere to the law so strictly that he refused David the bread. You know, he could have sat there munching away on it saying, I'm sorry, I don't have anything for you, but this is all for me. That's what the law says. Too bad, David, the anointed one of God, trying to save his own life, which the priest knew. People knew what was going on. Had he done so, what would he have been doing? He'd have been serving his own righteousness. He'd have been making himself feel good. Look how I can keep the law. I'm doing the right thing. But it's a self-centered kind of response to the law. It's in, it's." intended to make himself feel good about doing the right thing, and in doing the right thing, feel holy. But it's a self-focused, self-centered view. He's not, on the other hand, going to be showing any mercy. He's not going to be showing any compassion for David. David's future, his future king, God's anointed future king. So what did the priest do? He decides to overlook the rule for the sake of honoring God's anointed David, who himself in faith was honoring God, as we've said, by not fighting back. And I want you to, I want to recognize this is a difficult concept for some people to grasp. You're telling me, Steve, that because he was trying to honor a man who himself was trying to honor God, that it's just okay to ignore the rules once in a while. Is that what you're saying? Is that what Scripture's saying here? That we can kind of blow off the rules anytime they don't fit? Well, not exactly, but almost. It's difficult for us to understand this. It's going to be even harder for the Pharisees to appreciate what Jesus is saying. But I want you to understand it as best you can. God set rules for men for what purpose? Did God give the law to make men righteous? No. We've already established that. Paul said that. You can't make someone righteous by giving them the rules. So forget that purpose. You can't be righteous following the rule. Well, then why did he give us the rule? So that we would understand what sin was. Okay, that makes some sense. But there's a bigger purpose in that. Why does understanding our sin serve any good. What's the purpose in that? Ultimately, God is setting rules for men to follow so that they would honor Him by their attempts at obedience and they would demonstrate their love through Him or, th- or for Him, rather, through their obedience. In other words, it's an opportunity, it's a test, if you will, of where is your heart? The rule itself isn't the point, it's what you think you're doing when you follow the rule. The Pharisees followed rules left and right, didn't make them righteous. Because their intent was to make themselves righteous. It was a work. A work of righteousness. What's the priest doing on the other hand? The priest is saying in the moment, it's more important to me to honor God's anointed and to support Him and to be a support in love and compassion to Him than it is that I follow some obscure simple rule that in this moment would not serve God's greater good. It would, not, it would be contrary to the feeling I have of compassion and mercy in this moment to ignore David's need. We do this all the time. I want you to understand, we do what David's just done all the time. Let me give you an example, and maybe you've never had this specific example in case, but I'll be sure you've had some like it. You're walking down the street, and you come upon a house, and it's on fire. You notice flames coming out one end of the house, and you naturally want to run up and see if you can help. You run up to the side of the house that's not flaming, because you can't get near the other side, and you look in the windows, and you see a crib... And you look through the window and you through the smoke and haze, you can kind of make out a baby in the crib. And there's nobody else around. So you run out to the front yard, you find a big rock, you come back, you throw it through the window and you break the glass. You jump in, you take the baby out, rush outside the house with it. Baby's barely breathing, coughing, looks real sick. So you jump in your car and run to the hospital with the baby. All right? In that scenario, you have just broken at least three laws. You've committed at least three felonies. Number one, vandalism. You broke a window. Number two, breaking and entering into a home that's not your own. Number three, kidnapping. But would the law prosecute you for any of those violations? They are, in fact, violations of the law. You did, in fact, break the law in all three cases. But no prosecutor in the world is going to press charges against you because of the greater good of saving the baby's life. And that greater good, your intentions, in other words, to do greater good, were itself the reason we have laws. And that's the point of what God is saying through David. Think of our laws that we have here in the country. They're intended to do what? They're intended to have citizens demonstrate consideration for one another and respectful behavior among one another. And if the law is intended to encourage people to look out for the common good and obey, you know, and, and be respectful of property and of, of personal rights, then when an action that's intended to accomplish that very end requires violating the laws set up for that end, so be it. It's the end that matters, not the means to the end. It's not keeping the laws that matter. It is the purpose of the laws that matter. And the purpose of the laws is the greater common good and the benefit of property and life and liberty and so on. And if I'm achieving the end, but in order to achieve the end, I have to overlook some of the laws that were in fact designed to accomplish that end, so be it. That's why we let you break into a house to save a baby. That's why the priest could ignore the law over the bread to save this man's life because he was God's anointed. And the heart desire in all these cases is to do good, is to be compassionate and be merciful. God's desire being shown in that. Now you have to be careful because if I have a bad motive, I can use that as a rationalization to break any rule, right? The heart motive is the point. It's the same for God's law. I want you to consider an example out of Second Chronicles chapter 30. King of Israel at that time was Hezekiah. He's trying to reunite the split nation of Israel. Northern and southern kingdom had split by then. You've got two halves and he's trying to reunite them. And they're basically apostate. King Hezekiah ruled at a time when there was very little faith in true Israel. It's been years since anyone on either kingdom has uh, followed any of the ceremonial law. They haven't had a Passover in generations. Consider that. The Jewish nation not observing their Passover for generations. And Hezekiah steps in and says, we're going to do the Passover this year. We're crying out loud. It's been too long. And he sends messengers out to both kingdoms saying, participate in the Passover with us. Come down to Jerusalem and do the Passover meal. Some respond, not many, but some. Some of the men of the northern kingdom, some of the southern kingdom come. A remnant, if you will. And in chapter 30, as he calls them back to the temple to repent, they come back in not having participated in the law at all for generations. No one had performed, for example, any of the cleansing rituals required under the law before you could be in the Passover. Before you could be part of the Passover, remember, you had to be ritually clean. That's why Jews were so afraid of being found in presence of a dead body or, or in a woman who was menstruating in the, in the week prior to Passover because if they had that experience, they'd be unclean. They couldn't participate in Passover. Well, these people weren't thinking like that. They hadn't done any of those things. They were just being completely apostate. And now it's time for the Passover. And they come before the Lord, they come before the priests in the temple to participate in the Passover. Now what would the priests do? The priests could look out on this crowd and and say, you know what, none of you are ritually clean. All of you violate the law. I can't let you participate in the Passover. Passover is canceled. But these men have just come back with a desire to, to show God they are you know, back in legion with Him. They want to honor Him. They want to participate in the Passover. This is a response of faith in the moment. And what happens in verse 17 of Second Chronicles 30? This is what we find out. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore, the Levites were over the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone. So the the priests took on the role of slaughtering everybody's lamb because nobody else was consecrated to do it. So they looked for a way to kind of get around the, the problem. And in order to consecrate them to the Lord, then in verse 18, For a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. For Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though not in accordance to the purification rules of the sanctuary. And so the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. You hear his prayer? He says, though we're not doing all this the way the rules say we're supposed to, God, please overlook that because we've come here with hearts prepared to seek God. And God healed them. God said, you know what, that's what I wanted in the first place. The rule was just intended to remind you of the need for that. So the rule is not the point. It's a means to an end. Now go back to Christ's example. Christ, uh, in this example, we've just read back in Luke, says David's experience is a comparison that he should, that the Pharisees should understand. And if they understood it, they wouldn't be accusing him. And here's the comparison he's making. If God was willing to overlook David's violation of a, of a ceremonial law, a true law, a minor one in, in that sense, but it was under the law, if God was willing to overlook David's violation of the law because of what was going on in his heart, because of his desire to obey God in a general sense, then how much more should the Pharisees overlook Christ's ignoring of a man-made rule? Not the law now, but a man-made rule. How much more should they be willing to overlook that? Rules that had really no purpose other than to restrict men and make life more difficult. And they don't. In other words, they don't care about their hard intention. They don't care what Jesus and the disciples are trying to achieve. They only care that the rule was being broken. But if that weren't enough, Jesus adds one more important point in verse 5. He says... The Son of God is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is a different argument. He's going one step further now. Beyond simply saying, look, the violation of the rule is pointless. It's your rule, and it doesn't matter anyway because our hearts are in the right place. That's what God has always looked for. He says, moreover, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, remember, was a rule given by God to men. You observe this, and and of course we've studied this in Genesis, it was to picture Christ ultimately. It was a reminder of Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. It's a rule for men. It's not a rule for God. God is not held to that rule. He gave it to men. Do you have rules for your kids that are different than the rules you apply to yourself as the adult in the family? You should, because that's normal. Bedtimes can be different restrictions on what you can watch on TV or what you can do can sometimes be different. Uh, you know, Lots of things in life can vary depending on who the rule giver is and who the rule receiver is. And that's the case here. The Sabbath is not binding to God. It was a law given to men. And therefore, God is not bound by the Sabbath. He is in fact Lord over the Sabbath. His actions, and keep in mind, he did not violate the Sabbath. Picking grain was not a violation of the Sabbath. But had he done that, theoretically, had God violated the Sabbath... It wouldn't have been a violation of the law because it's not a law of God. It's a law for men to reveal their sin. He is Lord over the Sabbath. But if you sense there's an even larger issue here, if you kind of sense that maybe I haven't really touched on the larger issue, you're right. I'm going to wait and do that as we look at the next series of verses in Luke. We're going to look at the the last thing we're going to look at today is the second half of this issue of the Sabbath. There's really two discussions with the Pharisees on the Sabbath that take place back to back. In different places, different times. Luke puts them together like this because they're teaching a bigger fundamental point. He associates these two events. Look in chapter 6 of Luke, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he came up, got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on a Sabbath? To save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. And as he starts at the beginning there, you see it's another Sabbath, a different day, a different experience. He's combining these, as I said, because there's a larger point that spans the two discussions. Christ now has already gained a reputation for disrupting the Sabbath, at least in the minds of the Pharisees. Whether he's actually violating the Sabbath or not is irrelevant. They think he is. So now, every Sabbath is a test for him in their minds. Every Sabbath, they're never going to fail to be right next to him, because that's the best day of the week to catch him doing something wrong. Here he is again on the Sabbath teaching in a synagogue and they're all there watching his every move. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be Jesus and having these men watch you at all times, looking to accuse you? And I want you to also notice as we go into this, look how completely warped the Pharisees' rules have become. This one takes the cake. Consider that they're they're worried, they're expecting in fact that he's going to do something supernatural like heal somebody. That's what they're principally worried about. They're wondering, is he going to heal somebody in this synagogue service? And consider healing by definition, supernatural, miracle of God, an act of God to heal, right? And somehow they're thinking that when you heal on the Sabbath, you're going contrary to God's law. And yet, if you're going to heal, it's got to be God doing it. So you'd be implying that violating the law, violating God's law by letting God heal is somehow a mistake. How does that work? How does the very person who gave you the rule then give you the power to violate it by giving you power to heal on the day you're not supposed to heal? It makes no sense at all. Even just a simple thinking takes that out of the possibility. And so they're standing ready to accuse him, waiting for him to heal. Now, notice the scripture says that Jesus knew what they were thinking. So what he's going to do here is he's going to essentially provoke the confrontation. He knows what they're thinking and he's going to let this experience happen so that he can bring this issue up. His intention here is to actually deal with this issue. So he looks around the synagogue. He sees a guy with a withered hand. Now the word withered in, in the Greek actually means dry. Well, you know, like something would wither up and dry. But the Im- implication is the hand may have been a birth defect, something where it was never fully formed right. So we're not talking about something that could reasonably be expected to happen under normal natural circumstances. It's going to be self-evidently supernatural when he heals this man. And so he calls the man up to the front. The man's sort of expecting what's going to happen. There's very little reason Jesus would have called him up otherwise. His deformity was probably obvious to everyone. So he calls the man up to the front with the purpose to heal him. And this is what the Pharisees have been waiting for. So they're all ready to see something go wrong in their mind. But he's going to use this moment to teach a lesson. So before he heals him, he asks this provocative question. He says, does the law compel people to do good or to do bad on the Sabbath? To save a life? Or does to destroy it? Matthew, when he relates this account, he actually adds that the question of uh adds Jesus asking an additional question here. Jesus in Matthew's account adds, uh what would you do if your sheep fell into a well? Who of you would not go and save that sheep if your sheep fell in the well on a Sabbath day? In other words, Jesus pointing out that all men would instinctively recognize that if my sheep is in jeopardy, I'm not going to wait till Sunday after the Sabbath to to rescue him. I'm going to do it in the moment. Work or no work, this is important. This overrides the desire to avoid work. It goes back to the issue we just talked about a minute ago. Doing good in that moment required that I overlook some aspect of the law for the moment, but my heart was to do the right thing, and that was sufficient in their mind to to justify that that action. And that was the whole point of what Jesus is saying here. But he says, effectively, if we're willing to save the lamb, then how much more should we, we be willing to save a person? Do something good for a person, in other words. If you all acknowledge you're willing to do it for your lamb, why would you accuse me if I do it for a person? That's what he's implying. Of course, the Pharisees don't answer him. That's important. I want you to notice that. There's no response to his question. It's not a hard question. Who is going to raise their hand and say bad? Who's going to say, oh, no, the law requires we... No, of course not. The law says, effectively, do good in all that you do. So the answer is obviously, well, you would want to do good on the Sabbath. As soon as that answer had come from anyone in the crowd, Jesus would have had his justification to heal that man and not be accused. That's why they give him no answer. They're not about to play into his situation. They're not going to give him license to do what they don't want him to do. They want to be able to accuse him. Further insight about their motives. It's Not to make people righteous. It was to accuse him, to tear him down. I said earlier that rules can't create righteousness. They merely give out opportunity for accusation. And that's the larger issue here. In the previous account we saw concerning the Sabbath, the Pharisees, we had said already, made these endless rules for measuring righteousness. But they worked in two ways. I want you to see this. First, the Pharisees had set themselves up within society as an example of righteousness. They were seeing themselves as righteous. But the rules that they pointed to for everyone else to follow were the same rules they pointed to in their own life as proof that they had followed the way of righteousness. But the game was rigged. The fix was in. If you're the group making the laws and then you set yourself up as the same group determining who's following them or not, you can always find some way to show how you're following them and somebody else is not. We don't put the people who make the rules in the same position as judging who's keeping the rules in a game. Not if they have a stake in the game. And of course, these men do. They want to be seen as righteous. They set the rules and they were the judges as well. And then they spent their time doing this. They taught everyone their rules. Then, after everyone was knowledgeable of the rules, they set back looking for violations. The rest of their time was spent trying to point out how everyone else was violating their rules, leaving themselves as the only righteous people in society. Self-righteousness on the basis of works. That's why, by the way, we call it work. Because it's hard. It would be very hard to do this and do it successfully. In fact, it's impossible. Christ is also pointing out here, of course, that they're hypocrites. Jesus rightly says that any one of them would have pulled their own sheep out, but now they're ready to accuse him for doing good to a person. That's hypocritical. So the first way these rules are used is in showing themselves to be righteous. The second way these rules are used is in accusing other people of not being righteous. But James gives us the true measure of what Jesus is really asking them to do here. Is it right or is it wrong? Listen to what Jesus says, or James says rather, in 2.12. James in 2.12 says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. What is it? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? What James is pointing out is that when you show no mercy, when all you consider, from your, from your standpoint, all you consider your religion to be is one of judgment, of determining who is righteous and who is not, it's not true faith. True faith looks beyond the rules and looks into the heart and tries to understand what is the right thing to do, what does the law of liberty require, rather than God's law on stone. And this is what Jesus is trying to contend with in the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all judgment. That's all they had was judgment according to their rules even, not by God's. They had no room for mercy. And so James says, truly, that's indicative of someone who has no faith, whose only interest is in self-righteousness, showing the difference between me and someone else by what rules I can keep and what rules I can show them as not keeping. Totally self-serving. And he skillfully throws this example back in their face. Look what he does. He tells the man, stretch out your hand. Jesus is standing there for all we know and sitting at this point. If he's teaching in the synagogue, he's actually sitting. He's sitting there without moving a muscle. He just tells the man, stretch out your hand. And it's healed. He did no work. Jesus didn't violate the Sabbath. He completely frustrated the Pharisees. They were looking for him to do something demonstrative that they could point to and say, ah, there's the work. There's the violation of the Sabbath. Jesus just said, hey, show your hand. Hey, what do you know? It's healed. Look at that. No work done and it infuriated the Pharisees because he doesn't speak, he doesn't do anything at all beyond just instructing the man to move his arm and therefore he can't break any of their senseless rules and yet by the same token he does demonstrate you do good. That doing good, showing mercy and compassion on someone is in fact the point of even God having laws and rules. And you know he stunned that audience. They're obviously amazed by the healing but they're embarrassed. The Pharisees now have been shown up by Christ amongst the people. What the other gospel writers tell us that Luke doesn't record is that this is the moment that the Pharisees decide they're going to kill Jesus. This is the moment, early as it is, when they decide that there's no way to deal with this guy except to put him to death. But they couldn't do it. They had to have somebody who could do their bidding for them. And that ultimately will lead us to the Romans being the way by which the Pharisees bring Christ to death. But you know, when people dispute, did the Romans put Christ to death? Did the Jews put Christ to death? We know the ultimate answer is that God set about these circumstances so that his son would be sacrificed. That was always the intent. But if you do want to come down to a group of people, it did begin with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the enemies of God himself and of faith, were the ones who began this process of looking for a way to bring Christ down. As we conclude for the morning, I hope it's easy for you to see that the Pharisees are not distant figures completely unlike ourselves. I know that's certainly the way we want to think of them. But unfortunately, that's not re- really the case in many, in many circumstances. We've got to be careful. We can easily do what the Pharisees do. In fact, we ought to be examining ourselves regularly in how we approach other people in our faith, how we approach unbelievers even. Are we pursuing Christ and demonstrating that pursuit by faith or are we pursuing God by works? Though we believe by faith, we may easily slip back into a life of works where we judge our own righteousness on the basis of how many of the rules we've kept this week that we set for ourselves. And then the worst case is we take those rules and we give them to somebody else. That new Christian, that recent convert, that new addition to our church, where and when it may happen, we suddenly indoctrinate them into a set of rules we believe are necessary. That's a dangerous precedent. I'll give you a a rule of thumb. You'll know the difference... Of whether or not you're living by works trying to reinstitute rules in your life versus simply living by the law of liberty, by faith, by whether you seek to compare yourself to others on the basis of how well they measure up to your rules. Check yourself and see if you don't do this on occasion. I know I do. How often do you find yourself making assessments about other people, for better or worse? And you stop and you realize, you know, the way, the reason I'm saying that person is wrong or right is because they didn't follow a rule I think is right. And all of a sudden you have to ask yourself, is that a rule of, is that a law of liberty? Can they live outside that rule and still be following God and doing His will and be faithful to Him and therefore being righteous in their behavior? Is that possible? Is my rule the dividing line between righteousness and unrighteousness? Or is it simply something I've grown accustomed to and I like? And if you're not careful, you'll surround yourself with people that follow your rules. And you'll look down on everyone else. It's an instinctive, natural part of the flesh. That's what the Pharisees had made a business of doing. We have a tendency to do it without even recognizing it. We are called to the law of liberty, Paul calls it. A law of liberty that says, not all things, all things may be lawful, but not all things are profitable. But what's profitable in one person's case or unprofitable in one person's case may not be the same for somebody else. The law of liberty gives room for the possibility of differences. Doing good at all times, regardless of the rules. Showing mercy rather than judgment. That is ultimately what should be in our heart. And that's what we ought to be seeking out of the Scripture when we see Christ dealing with the Pharisees. Where is the law of liberty at work in Christ in comparison to the law of works in the hearts of the Pharisees? Well, we'll end there today. Next week as we come back, we're going to be picking up, as, as you would expect, right where we left off. But in the next series of verses, we get into... Two very critical places of the Gospel. We're going to be talking first about the selection of the Apostles, which initially is simply a listing of their names, but there's some interesting things we can know about these people. And then secondly, on a very famous note, Christ goes to a mount and begins to give what we commonly call the Beatitudes. Covered more in depth in Matthew, but Luke covers them nonetheless. And many people misunderstand Christ's purpose, but when you put it into the context of this overall discussion that we've just begun of doing good regardless of the rule, of seeking what God would have you do, not what men's rules would have you do, you begin to understand the context in which Jesus is preaching the Beatitudes and they begin to make more sense. They begin to explain better what God is asking us to do. We'll transition out of those into a discussion of judgment and mercy and compassion that comes later in the chapter, some very important things, plus some discussions about treasure. And as I said in my email, the most misquoted scripture in, I think, all of the Bible used by men in a, for the prosperity gospel, to try to support a view of a prosperity gospel. It's in this chapter, and we'll tear it apart and understand how it's misused. And that's the weeks to come, so I hope that encourages you to, to uh, be able to make it back and hear as we teach through this. I'll close in prayer, and I thank you again for your attention, Daniel, close this in song. Father, thank you again for the opportunity, Lord, to understand the law of liberty. Father, how grateful we are that we have that law, that if it were merely the law of works, the the law you gave to Moses, Father, we would all be hopeless. We would not be here. We would not be called the child of God. But rather, Father, you gave through the Holy Spirit in us a law of liberty. It's a law, Father. No less, no less, Father, rules for righteous living. But now, Father, rather than rules written on stone, they're written on our heart. We can know in the moment, Father, what the right thing to do is. What is truly love. What is truly compassion and mercy. And we can respond, Father, if we only listen Father, that is a true gift, one that, Father, will give us a life with less sin if we listen. A life, Father, of less trial, of less harm, Father, of less self-inflicted injury if we only listen. But, Father, so often we are quick to take what you have given us in the law of liberty and turn it back into a law written on stone. Those things you've whispered to us in the quiet moments of our life, we shout aloud to others and claim Those are the ways to righteousness, but that's not what you intended, Father. And we confess, Father, that we do that on occasion and we ask your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that as we've studied your word today and seen the difference, that you will convict us day in and day out so that what you have told us in our heart is true, we will obey, but we will give room and liberty for those who are hearing from you in a different way, for a different purpose, Lord, knowing that true righteousness, Father, will be revealed in your day. And before then, we all struggle to be there. Thank you, Lord, that we can know the difference. And thank you, Father, that we can gather in this way to teach and to learn. Praise you for that as well, Lord. May it be a day to continue indefinitely. May we be here next week again and in the weeks to come. So that, Father, we may never grow apart from your word, relying on ourself, but always, Father, coming back for more of what you've given us here. We are so thankful for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.